Please turn now to Genesis chapter 20. We'll read verses 1 to 7. Genesis 20, 1 to 7. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he journeyed in Gerar, or sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation, even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. It doesn't tell us in verse 1 the cause, the reason for Abraham needing to sojourn in a different part of the land of Canaan, in the land of, or in the city of Gerar, and between these two major places, Shur and Kadesh. Shur is more close to Egypt, southwest of where Abraham was, and Kadesh more uh, south of where Abraham was. He had to move away, and it's likely that it may have to do with some incident, maybe the previous incident in the land of Sodom uh, and Gomorrah, maybe that incident, or maybe there's a famine, or per perhaps God just desired him for him to move away so that he might be tested in this new experience. Whatever the reason, he's moving away from where he was, and because of the people of that area, he, we will learn later, he was not sure of how these people are going to be. So he says in verse 2 of Sarah, so he had reported to people that Sarah was his sister. Now, on the one hand, what you would think that if they were living together, then everybody would know they were husband and wife. However, it was frequently the custom that the husband would have his own tent and the wife would have her own tent along with her maids dwelling in that separate tent. So it was not necessarily the case that everybody would know who belonged to whom whenever there were nomads traveling in tents like that. And, that, and they did travel in tents. So it would be easier for Abraham to be able to say this and people believe it, that she is my sister. And we know from chapter 12 where we have a similar incident when Abraham goes to Egypt in chapter 12 that he is concerned that the men of that place, the king especially, that he might not understand or might think that Sarah is such a beautiful woman that because you cannot take another man's wife to be your wife, you have to have the husband dead before you can take the widow to be your wife. And this is what his concern was in chapter 12, 12, 10 to 20, where we have a similar incident. Now, we might ask, or someone might ask and wonder, 
wasn't Sarah an old woman at this point? <laughs> and the answer is yes. She was old. She was about 90 years old. And she did live to, to be, uh, in chapter 23, it tells us that she, she lived to be 127 years old. And we know <laughs> Abraham eventually lived to be 175 years old. So Abraham is about 100 and she is about 90 at this point. However, the text does say, the Holy Spirit does say through the mouth of, of Abraham and does not deny that she was still maintaining her beauty. And one factor may be simply that God endowed her with that beauty. Another factor might be that um, she did not bear any children. And, and you know that through the bearing of children, the more children that you bear, especially uh, a woman bears, that then her, her beauty diminishes. And so this apparently did not happen to Sarah, but both because she was endowed with natural beauty, but also she had not borne any children by this point either. So in whatever way, she would be desirable to marry because of her beauty. So this king in verse 2, Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, Gerar belonged to the Philistines. That area belonged to the Philistines, even in the time of Abraham. And so he had to go to uh, the Philistine territory of the land of Canaan. And sometimes they're even all generally grouped into one, and they're called Canaanites. So, but they are still unbelievers. This is another question that arises with people. Are these people, and is Abimelech himself specifically the king, the king of Gerar, this one city, is he a, a believer in, in the Lord, in the gospel? Um, and I think the answer is no. And we'll, we will see examples of that um, in other places where there are kings and those that have heard a word from God, but they are not, according to the context, considered to be believers. Uh, maybe we should do that right now. Let me... Um, assert that I don't think Abimelech was a believer and then show that unbelievers do hear the word of God miraculously by God in scripture that that does happen and it may lead to conversion like it did in the case of Cornelius in Acts chapters 10 and 11 but it may not lead to conversion it may lead to judgment and, and punishment um, one example is in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 25, chapters 22 to 25 of Numbers, Balaam is a prophet. He is a sorcerer. He's a diviner. He's basically uh, a warlock or something like that. And he, he doesn't believe in the true gospel. However, even though he was hired to curse Israel through all of his incantations and magic and sorcery, God did not allow that to happen, and His Holy Spirit came upon him and made him pronounce blessings instead of cursings. The example is Numbers 24, verse 2. 24, 2. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. It says, the Spirit of God came upon him, in verse 3, and he took up his discourse and said, took up his discourse and said, and even according to verses 3 and 4, he knows 
that he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Notice, he says, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. Then he proceeds to bless Israel, the nation Israel. He proceeds to bless them. So here's an example of the Holy Spirit making Balaam teach the word of God, announce the word of God to the people and a word of blessing. Another example we have of an unbeliever hearing the word of God and announcing it is in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. 2 Chronicles chapter 35. This incident is hundreds of years later. The Egyptian king is going to war against the Assyrians and King Josiah of Judah, a godly king, he tries to intercept the king of Egypt when he should have nothing to do with that war. It's near his territory, it's near his land, but he should just stay out of it and let Egypt and Assyria fight each other. However, he transgressed it and then died because of the battle wounds. But notice what the king of Egypt, this is many years later, 600 BC, what he says to Josiah. 2 Chronicles 35, verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I am not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me, that he may not destroy you. That God may not destroy you by means of me. Verse 22. Now he's saying this, the king is saying it, but did he really say it from God or is he just claiming to have heard from God? Well, now the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 22. However, Josiah would not turn away from him but disguised himself in order to make war with him, nor did he listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. There the Spirit tells us that Necho spoke from the mouth of God. Not that he was a prophet of God or anything like that, or a believer, but God revealed his word to him and an example, therefore, of God to an unbeliever. Now, another and one final example in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, this is clearly an unbeliever. Clearly an unbeliever in reference to Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas, the high priest. John chapter 11, verse 47. 11, 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council... And we're saying, what are we going to do? What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one, that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. End of quote, right? 
Right. Now John, the apostle, says, Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Caiaphas is still in cahoots with the others in leadership to put Jesus to death, right? But what he prophesied about the meaning of Jesus' death, he did not say on his own initiative. He said it by the Holy Spirit because it said, he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. He prophesied. That means the Holy Spirit had to give him that word to announce that word, which would in his case, just like in Balaam's case, be a self-condemning word. And so, examples of unbelievers hearing, or announce, hearing, receiving, and announcing the word of God. And I think that that's what happens in the case of Abimelech, king of Gerar, a Philistine. So, back to Genesis 20, verse 2. It simply then says, he took Sarah, meaning took her to be his wife. Now, I think what happened, since we know from this passage that they actually did not come together, Abimelech and Sarah did not come together as husband and wife, I believe they did not come together because I believe that the kings had a custom of taking a woman to be wife, but not immediately. Not immediately. They would take the woman into the court, and wherever they needed to prepare themselves and wait, they would do that for a time, and then they would come together as husband and wife. Now, an example of this, we have, granted it's for another kingdom, but it, it does show a custom of waiting, and this might explain why, in both cases, both in Egypt and now here in Philistia, chapter 12 of Genesis and now in chapter 20 of Genesis, that Sarah was not taken in the full sense that the kings did not um, have relations with her at all. And I think likely because in the intermediate period, upon being taken to be wife and before they came together, God intervened. And our example is Esther chapter 2. Uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 8. Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Esther chapter 2 and verse 8. Esther 2, 8. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to Susa the capital into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. 
Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go in to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go in to the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Now back to verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12, it says that this is how it was. Six months of oil and of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. So they prepared themselves, beautified themselves, before they actually had relations with the king. And likely this is what's happening in Genesis chapter 20. We don't know how long it was, but some time was there. It wasn't immediate that someone was taken and then immediately they would come together as husband and wife. Genesis 20 verse Three. Back to Genesis 20 and verse 3. It says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him. Now from this we know that this was directly God. It doesn't say an angel. It doesn't say a prophet. It says God. So, and it says in a dream of the night. And in this way, God does not need any agent if he's speaking to somebody in a dream of the night. So directly he speaks and he says, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now, you are a dead man means this sentence is against you, not that he's already dead because he's sleeping, right? And he's able consciously later in the morning uh, to, to deal with things and, and rectify the matter. So he's putting a sentence or threat of death upon him because the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Because whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, whether you hear the word of God or don't hear the word of God, we all, as believers and unbelievers, all mankind, from the beginning of creation, from Adam and Eve until the end of the world, we all have a conscience. We all have a heart. We all have thoughts. We all have the law of God written on the heart. The law of God written on the heart. And I'm citing um, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Romans 2, 14 to 16 says that Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning the written law, they do have the unwritten law in their conscience, and they know the difference between good and evil. They know that they should not steal their neighbor's property, right? They know that. That's why they do it in secret. Correct? They know that they should not do that. They know they should not murder. They even know they should not worship idols. Because how is it 
that something that they make and then put before them and bow down before it and offer prayers to it, that have eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, mouths but don't speak, literally, if they were using their minds correctly, they ha- and if they're being honest, they have to know that that idol is not a god. Right. They have to know that. Correct? So, in the same way with taking a woman who is not your wife, they have to know, they do know, um, that you cannot do that. People generally don't do that. They have to do it contrary to their conscience. Or they have to sear their conscience or make their conscience so stony and insensitive then they are, are bold enough, brazen enough to go do those kinds of things. So a wicked man will do that, but if even a wicked man early, before he is so brazen and stony-hearted, he knows that that's wrong. But he does it anyways because his sin is more important to him, his sin is more important to him than obeying his conscience. So in this way, God was right. He was right to announce this to Abimelech and to tell him so. God was right to do so. Here we have an example of God directly telling an unbeliever, you are sinning against God and you deserve to die. Right. Which also teaches us, because the question often arises, when we're witnessing to people, should we tell them about their sin? When we're witnessing to, to people, should we tell them what the Word of God says about their sin? Sure. And many, many evangelists, many, many people say, no, 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 don't ever do that. Don't ever talk about sin to unbelievers and don't ever use the word of God to explain sin to unbelievers. Don't talk about sin to unbelievers. When you talk to unbelievers, just tell them about God as creator and how much God loves them and how Jesus died on the cross. Just tell them about the love of God. Don't tell them anything more. But... How here would they ever come to any contrition? That's right. That's right. And we'll come to ex- explore that subject some more during our Q&A. So in, in verse 3, we have God teaching us that we have to confront people who are sinning. We have to do that. In whatever capacity, whatever means we have to confront it, we must do so. And announce to them the facts of the matter. Isn't that what God's doing? You are a dead man. You deserve judgment because the woman whom you have taken uh, for because the woman you have taken for she is married. The reason why you are sinning. If you pursue this further, you are you are going to receive the death sentence for this. Now, also speaking of, of this and this sin, notice that this is something that is here in the book of Genesis, and there is no Moses. Moses does not come around until the book of Exodus, a few hundred years after Abraham. Because people say that the sin of adultery, the sin of murder, the sin of idolatry, the sin of dishonoring parents, the sin of breaking the Sabbath and the various other Ten Commandments, those are only sins in the period of Moses. From 1500 BC until the first coming of Christ, and then from the day of Pentecost and in our period until Christ returns, there is no obligation to the laws of Moses and even the Ten Commandments, they say. They say that. This is very common within Christianity. 
There is no obligation to the Ten Commandments. No obligation to the Ten Commandments. So, this is an example of how even before Moses there was an obligation to it. God is holding Abimelech accountable to it. Yep. And in this one sin, the sexual sin, but there are other sins. All of the Ten Commandments have been broken between Genesis chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 18. All of the Ten Commandments, if you do a careful study of this subject, all of the Ten Commandments have been broken from Genesis chapter 3 to Exodus chapter 18. Because then in Exodus 19, that's when the law is delivered to Moses, including the tablets of the Ten Commandments and the rest of the laws in written form in the time of Moses. So it's all here, and it's expected of both believers and unbelievers to live up to that standard. And the only way the believers, even Abraham, is able to live up to it is by the work of the Holy Spirit, changing his heart, converting him, and giving him a desire to love and please God. Now, verse 4. Verse 4, Abimelech, he uh, objects. Verse 4, now Abimelech had not come near her. Remember, uh, because of this intermediate period, likely. For he, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God confirms it. What Abimelech said was true. Right. Abimelech said that we are blameless because we didn't know any better. So in that sense, he's blameless. He didn't know any better. Verse 5, did he not himself say? So Abraham said, she is my sister. And Sarah said about Abraham, he is my brother. So it's not just Abraham. Interpreters who want to find fault with Abraham are not being fair because they also need to find fault with Sarah. If they're going to find fault with Abraham... They should also find fault with Sarah because they both said, she is my sister, he is my brother. They both were saying those things. So, now, he's doing it in the integrity of of his heart, the innocence of his hands, right? Now, what is true about what he's saying and why is it that God's holding him accountable to it? Now, it's true that he did it innocently in the sense that he didn't know what was going on. Right. He didn't know exactly what the facts were, what the circumstance was, right? He didn't know. But then once he knows and acts contrary to it, then what? He's guilty. Right. Correct? So this, this shows that many times we can and often do do things that we don't know any better but once we are informed of it, then we need to repent. Yeah. We need to repent and avert the evil, right? This is what we have to do. We have an example of something like this, not exactly, but something like it in Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus 5. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 17. 517. Now, if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty 
and shall bear his punishment. Though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock, according to your evaluation for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. It is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. Here then we have, when, when a man sins unaware, sins unintentionally, then he's made aware of it, he needs to repent of it, because he's guilty, and, and of course not practice that sin. And we have something like that with Abimelech. So Abimelech needs to avoid her and give her back to Abraham. So, verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God prevented it from happening by this dream. Not let you touch her. To touch a woman in the Bible is tantamount to having relations with her. Because this would be the purpose in you touching a woman. Now, we're not talking about sisters, and we're not talking about babies and holding your baby. We're not talking that way. We're talking about in the average adult scenario, if you're touching a woman, the purpose of touching a woman, um, it should be your wife, and and upon touching your wife, that means the implication is that that would lead to marital relations with the woman. So here, he did not even let Abraham, I'm, I'm sorry, let Abimelech even touch her for that purpose of marital relations. God prevented that from happening. In case anybody wonders, in case there's any uh, speculation as to who Isaac's father was, right? Isaac's father, correct? Because this is what will happen in the next chapter. In the next chapter, yes. In the next chapter, Isaac will be born. So, verse 7. Verse 7. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. If he's repenting, if he's going to rectify the situation, he has to restore the man's wife. It's one thing to say it, right? Like Abimelech said, I'm innocent. But then it's another thing to carry out what you say in your words. So he's going to be showing that he is repenting or turning away from this sin or not pursuing the possibility of this sin by restoring the man's wife. So his words are going to be manifested in his works, which we'll see in the next paragraph at the end of the chapter. Works are a manifestation of the words being true words, correct? For we, we are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith without works is dead. James 2, 14 to 26. Faith without works is dead. Now, in this case, even if he's an unbeliever, 
unbelievers do show a sham repentance or a superficial repentance. They do manifest that in many ways, many times. We have this in the Bible. Like even Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, he returned the 30 pieces of silver, correct? He betrayed Christ for the 30 pieces, but he returned the 30 pieces. So in that sense, he was showing a kind of repentance, but it wasn't a true repentance. Right. It was a superficial one because he then hanged himself. And the scriptures say clearly, such as John 13, 18, and 17, 12, that he was a son of perdition. And the scripture had to be fulfilled in God using him as a reprobate man for his glory and kingdom. Okay, so it, I think that's what's happening with Abimelech here. He restores the man's wife in that sense. And the threat that he would die and his household would die, or all who are yours would die. God would bring a big plague upon him and everyone else. Then also notice verse 7. Restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. Abraham is a prophet who will pray for Abimelech for him to be preserved. Abraham is a prophet, and Abraham is not faulted, but as a godly prophet, he's going to pray for the restoration of Abimelech. Now, that sounds ironic, does it not? Because if you read this passage without understanding the significance of verse 7 and other things the scriptures say, you would think that Abraham is behaving very, very wickedly here. You would easily come to that conclusion if you weren't thinking about verse 7 and other scriptures, such as, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, 18 to 22. This scripture describes Abraham as a godly prophet, a prayerful prophet, right? In the midst of this dilemma, in the midst of this potential sin. So let's read Romans 4, 4, 18. 4.18 In hope against hope he believed. This is Abraham. In hope against hope he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now in verse 18, so shall your descendants be, this is in Genesis Chapter 15, verse 5. 15:5, when Abraham was about 75 years old. So what Paul is describing here about Abraham's life is at least in this 25-year period between the time 
of Genesis 15, 5 and Genesis 21 when Isaac is born. And that Isaac would be the ancestor of Christ. Now this is all going on at least in terms of what Paul is citing here in Romans 4 from Genesis 15 to Genesis 21. We know it's earlier than Genesis 15, but he's yeah. quoting Genesis 15, 5 in Romans 4, 18, which means Abraham had in mind that this promise would be fulfilled. And it says in verse 20, he did not waver in unbelief, grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. This is significant because Genesis chapter 20 is between Genesis 15 and 21. It's between those chapters in sequence, chapter sequence, but it's also in chronological sequence right there. This is why it, we cannot very easily find fault with Abraham in this chapter, I believe. And when God confronted Abimelech in this chapter and stopped him from sinning by, by marrying Sarah, he did not confront Abraham, but instead commended Abraham and assumes that he is a godly prophet because he's going to pray for Abimelech's restoration. Correct? It would be very easy for Moses to tell us, but God also confronted Abraham, and he also confronted Sarah, and made them repent, and then their prayers were acceptable to God. Nothing like that is mentioned. It's simply that Abraham is a prayerful prophet who will pray for Abimelech's restoration. Also notice, he's called a prophet. We think of Abraham as a patriarch, a man of faith, right? The father of all the faithful, and that's all true. All of that is right. The friend of God. But he was also a prophet, right. which means he heard words of God, oracles of God, that he received and understood and also preached to the people. He had to receive them, understand them, and then preach and explain them to the people. Right. He was not uh, an ignorant prophet or a rote prophet, a rote prophet in that mindlessly hearing some words and not having any comprehension, any understanding of what they were, and then just repeating them to people. He was not a mindless rote prophet. He was an understanding prophet, consciously aware of, of him receiving the words of God and announcing them. And he's not the first one. Actually, I believe prophecy started with Adam. We know that in Genesis 2, 15 to 17... Adam received the words of God. He received the first commandment, the test in the Garden of Eden. In that sense, he was a prophet. And then he also had to receive words from God to institute animal sacrifices, which God did in Genesis 3.21, when God slew the first animals to clothe Adam and Eve and to signify the blood of Christ and the clothing of Christ on them, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.21. And he had to receive oracles of God to be able to teach Abel, his son, right. how to offer proper sacrifices, to have faith in God and show his faith by his sacrifices, right? To Abel and so forth. 
Now, we do have confirmation from other scriptures about what I'm saying here. Um, Not directly about Adam from other scriptures, but we do about Abel and others, and even Abraham. So firstly, if we want to start with Abel, let's go to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, verse 49. Luke 11, 49. Christ speaks. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. The Lord here is speaking of prophets and apostles. Prophets and apostles, right? Prophets designate those in the Old Testament and apostle those in the New Testament. And from the foundation of the world, or since the foundation of the world, well, who lived in that period of the foundation of the world? Adam and Abel, right? And Adam was not put to death, but Abel was. Remember Genesis 4? Abel was put to death. That's why he says in 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. These are Old Testament prophets. Martyred prophets. He has in view martyred prophets. That's why he doesn't say Adam, because Adam wasn't martyred. The martyred prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Then, in the book of Genesis, remember, in Genesis chapter 5, we have Enoch. Enoch, a descendant of Adam. He's there in Genesis 5, 21 to 24. There it does not call him a prophet, just like it doesn't call Abel a prophet in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4. However, in Jude, Jude 14, Jude 14, Enoch, the one that is a descendant of Adam, is designated as a prophet. Jude 14. Revelation, go to Revelation, go back a few pages to Jude. And about these also, Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This Enoch is clearly identified as the Enoch of Genesis 5, and he prophesies, so he's a prophet. And what does he prophesy or predict? He's predicting the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And in the second coming, he will execute judgment upon the wicked. Well, if he's preaching the second coming of Christ, he has to also preach or prophesy the first coming of Christ. Enoch preached and prophesied the first and second comings of Christ, according to Jude. And if you doubt that it is Christ, beginning in Jude verse 4, 4 and onward, 4, 5 and onward, whenever he says the Lord, he means the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he means. Not the Father, but the Lord Jesus. So it was the Lord Jesus, that Enoch was prophesying. Then, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as prophets. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as prophets. Turn to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. 105, verse 8. 105, verse 8. This is written later in the time of David, right? Psalm 105 and verse 8. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. When they were only a few men in number, very few and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. The prophets he mentioned are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it even says he reproved kings for their sakes. Genesis 20, I'm sorry, Genesis 20, Abimelech, Genesis 12, the Pharaoh, he reproved them. And then in the case of Isaac and Jacob, they also encountered kings and they were also confronted to prevent them from harming Isaac and Jacob. So they were protected as his anointed prophets, it says. Do my prophets no harm. So these patriarchs are patriarchs and many other things, but they are also prophets who have the sure word of God announced to them, understood, and then they preach that to others. Now let's take a break.